0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy mcphee Olabest, And today we're airing a special episode in response to the Supreme Court ruling on June 24th, 2022, which eliminated the constitutional right to abortion. This right had been granted in 1973 by way of the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, when the justices ruled that the decision of whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term was covered under the Right to Privacy Clause of the 14th Amendment. Nearly 50 years later, conservative judges appointed by Donald Trump led the court to revoke women's right to make this choice for themselves. In response, the three liberal justices on the court wrote that the court had done grave damage to women's equality and to its own legitimacy. They wrote, with sorrow for this court, but more for the many millions of American women who have today lost a fundamental constitutional protection, we dissent. To help make sense of this issue, we are re-airing an episode from season one that looks in-depth at the original Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade. And to make this episode easier to share with others, we condensed two long episodes down to just one 45-minute piece. So please, whether or not you heard it in 2020... Give it a listen now, and then share it with anyone you know, especially people who may be struggling to figure out how they feel about this topic. I know it took me a lot of time researching for me to come to my own conclusions about abortion rights, so I have a lot of compassion for people who find this issue challenging. My hope is that more people will do honest-hearted, open-minded research, starting with reading Roe v. Wade itself. But in the meantime, here's a review of this essential text. Before we dig into this essential text and talk about its implications for women, I'd like to introduce my reading partner, Lindsay McPhee Hickok. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Amy. Lindsay is my sister. And And Lindsay, one of the many things I love about you is the passion with which you care for women and babies at your job as a labor and delivery nurse. And... So I just am so grateful that you're here with me to discuss this today. The first time I dedicated time to studying and thinking about abortion and abortion rights was in a class called International Women's Health and Human Rights at Stanford in 2019. Conversations on abortion had always made me uncomfortable because there was so much contention around that topic and because my religion and my experiences as a mother had made my feelings really, really tender about it. So it's contentious in politics. It's very tender. And like, I felt like kind of raw <laughs> about it on a personal level. And for whatever reason, I don't really know why, but when I was in the class, I thought, you know, I've made my choice, my my po- political choice, I guess, and my... My approach to this topic has not ever really been examined. I've always just gone along with the way my religion taught me and my feelings about it, but I've never done any reading of any data about the topic. And so for whatever reason, I decided to lean into my discomfort and for the first time attempt to understand why a lot of people that I respected supported women's rights to an abortion. So I just want to offer a few takeaways that I from doing that, that research project, which lasted the whole quarter. The first one is this. I dislike the terms pro-life and pro-choice. I think they're more often than not divisive. I think sometimes they're disingenuous, and they often shut down conversation instead of promoting understanding of one side for the other. I think implied in, in pro-life is that the other side is anti-life or pro-death. And that is not fair or accurate because many women who hold this view would personally not choose abortion as an option. And in general, people who hold that view tend to be very concerned about the quality of life for mothers and children, very concerned with life. And they support programs to lift people out of poverty. They support healthy, flourishing lives for people already on this planet many of whom are dealing with unimaginably difficult circumstances. So I don't feel it's fair to imply that the other side is not pro-life. And then implied in pro-choice is that the other side is anti-choice. And that's not fair either. I think many people who hold this view emphasize that people do have the choice of whether or not to have sex. Most abortions are not cases of rape or incest or threats to the mother's life. So they emphasize that most of the time a woman has choice but it's about whether or not to have sex and she has a choice of whether to use birth control and they say rather than using your power of choice so late once you're already pregnant then a woman should use her power of choice to avoid the situation entirely it's just not an accurate assessment so
1: yeah I think that there are a lot of people who don't fully identify as pro-life meaning you know anti- Choice. And I don't think that there are a lot of people that would say, yeah, I'm pro choice, which means I don't care about life. Right. I actually think most people, if you sat down and had a discussion with them, fall somewhere in the middle as far as I value choice and I value life. Right. And these um, black and white titles or camps don't really capture them or me.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially after having done this project, this one right now with you and also in my class, I just think, why did I wait so long to actually just say, what what am I afraid of? I'm just going to read about what is actually happening in our world. What are the actual arguments? What what is the actual data? And so I think that education makes us so that we are not vulnerable to just whoever is the most persuasive speaker at whatever rally we go to Mm -hmm. or whatever super persuasive editorial we read that we're already inclined to believe because maybe that's how we grew up. I just think education makes us so we're not vulnerable to being swayed again to a different camp. And instead we can say, well, I see the wisdom in this. I see the wisdom in that. Anyway, I want to share a couple more points that I learned from the class quickly. One thing that just kept hitting me, and this is should be very simple and basic, but it just kept hitting me as I read women's stories that no woman thinks like from a really great place in her life, you know what I want? I want an unwanted pregnancy that ends in an abortion. No one wants that, right? The vast majority of abortions, there are some abortions that are necessary to save the mother's life, but the vast majority of them come from women confronting an unwanted pregnancy. On an individual level, no woman wants to be in a position where she needs an abortion. and on an, on a societal level, Nobody wants high abortion rates. Nobody, not Republicans, not Democrats, not men, not women. Even if you're looking at it from a fiscal point of view, abortions are expensive for the individual or for the government. There's no win in having lots of abortions. Nobody wants that. I, I just think we should be looking at the data honestly and doing what works. So I came to this. For me, abortion is a big deal. It should be taken seriously on a societal level. It should be taken seriously on a personal level. It is a hard, hard choice to make with so many different circumstances factoring in for each woman. So who is qualified to make that difficult choice? Who can be trusted to make that difficult choice? So whether you personally view the fetus as its own body or as part of the woman's body, the fact remains that it is inside a woman's body and the woman is the one whose life is impacted by that pregnancy. So those are some of the, the issues that my class helped me consider, and we'll encounter some of those points in the text. But let's get down to Roe versus Wade itself. Lindsay, can you start us off by reading a quick summary of the case that we found in Encyclopedia
1: Britannica? Sure. Roe versus Wade, or Roe v. Wade, legal case in which the U.S. Supreme Court on January 22, 1973, ruled 7-2, to two, that unduly restrictive state regulation of abortion is unconstitutional. In a majority opinion written by Justice Harry A. Blackman, the court held that a set of Texas statutes criminalizing abortion in most instances violated a woman's constitutional right of privacy, which it found to be implicit in the Liberty Guarantee of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which states, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the process of law. So that's one key fact that it's important to know. In determining whether abortion rights were protected by the Constitution, the Supreme Court justices determined that the Privacy Clause of the 14th Amendment covered women's rights to make this very intimate decision with her own doctor, and then it would violate her privacy for the government to intervene. Okay.
0: That's great. That's a great summary. Okay, so now we'll actually get into the text. I'm going to start by reading just a little bit of the opening paragraph, because I think it really sets the tone of how these judges were thinking about the issue. Quote, We forthwith acknowledge our awareness of the sensitive and emotional nature of the abortion controversy of the vigorous opposing views, even among physicians, and of the deep and seemingly absolute convictions that the subject inspires. One's philosophy, one's experiences, one's exposure to the raw edges of human existence, one's religious training, one's attitude toward life and family and their values and the moral standards one establishes and seeks to observe, are all likely to influence and to color one's thinking and conclusions about abortion. In addition, population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones tend to complicate and not to simplify the problem. Our task, of course, is to resolve the issue by constitutional measurement, free of emotion and of predilection. We seek earnestly to do this, and because we do, we have inquired into, and in this opinion, place some emphasis upon medical and medical legal history and what that history reveals about man's attitudes toward the abortion procedure over the centuries. End quote. So I really appreciate the balance of this introduction. On one hand, acknowledging the emotional and spiritual aspects of this topic. This was I was just really surprised as I started to read this. Were you, Lindsay?
1: Mm -hmm. It was so much more personal than I expected. I found it actually quite endearing. Yeah, me too. Um, To the judges, I felt endeared because... They were looking at it and seeing that this is this huge issue that people really feel deeply about. But then when they say our task is to resolve this free of emotion, I thought that's such a such a huge task. And I, I guess I just felt a deep honor for what they were doing and what they're trying to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love that they remind us that their job is to uphold the US Constitution, right? So they can't be swayed by emotion or religion because of separation of church and state, although they're recognizing that religion factors into it. So how hard that would be to try to make that deliberation so hard, so hard. So then the next portion of the document is a really long description of how people have viewed abortion throughout history. And we won't read even close to all of it. We're just going to choose some highlights. So let's just dive in and start kind of touching on a few different points on this historical timeline as they're presented in Roe versus Wade. The first one is this, quote, It perhaps is not generally appreciated that the restrictive criminal abortion laws in effect in a majority of states today are of relatively recent vintage. Those laws generally proscribing abortion or its attempt at any time during pregnancy except when necessary to preserve the pregnant woman's life are not of ancient or even of common law origin, end quote. So basically they're establishing that the current attitudes toward abortion are relatively recent. And so then they say okay, well if this is recent then what have other people done in the past? And they go way way back to try to learn from the way other people at other times have approached the issue. So they start with ancient attitudes. And they they say yeah, we know this is we this is not capable of precise determination, but quote We are told that at the time of the Persian Empire, abortifacients were known and that criminal abortions were severely punished. We are also told, however, that abortion was practiced in Greek times as well as in the Roman era, and that it was resorted to without scruple. If abortion was prosecuted in some places, it seems to have been based on a concept of a violation of the father's right to his offspring. And then he comments, ancient religion did not bar
1: abortion. End quote. So the justices ruling on Roe v. Wade continued their review of the history by visiting the more recent past. Here, you see lawmakers are trying to figure out when a fetus becomes a living human soul. And for some time, the accepted point was when it began to move. I quote again, there was agreement that prior to quickening, the fetus was to be regarded as part of the mother, and its destruction, therefore, was not homicide. Whether abortion of a quick fetus or a moving fetus was a felony at common law or even a lesser crime is still disputed. End quote. Moving forward, we come to the year of eighteen oh three, when England developed its first criminal abortion statute, which made early abortion a crime, but abortion after quickening a capital crime. Oh my gosh. A capital crime. Yes. Yep. Wow. You could you could suffer the death penalty if you had an abortion after quickening. Oh my. This is a point in history where the law really doubles down and if you end a pregnancy, you're ending a potential life and that's basically murder. I will add this quote. And this is again about the English abortion statute. Quote, it contained a proviso that one was not to be found guilty of the offence unless it is proved that the act which caused the death of the child was not done in good faith for the purpose only of preserving the life of the mother mm. end quote so we're we're accepting and the fact that there might be cases where you would need to do an abortion late in pregnancy if it was going to save the life of the mother mm. This still comes into discussion, you know, with my friends, when we talk about abortion, it's, it's usually pretty accepted that if the mom's going to die, that's a different situation. But I do find that kind of frustrating, Mm -hmm. because I think there are other circumstances that are very debilitating, that don't cost the woman their life, but really need to be weighed Mm -hmm. still. Okay, so... I am happy to share with you the following quote as a follow-up okay, from yep. Roe v. Wade again. Yep. Quote, recently, Parliament enacted a new abortion law. This is the Abortion Act of 1967. The act permits a licensed physician to perform an abortion where two other licensed physicians agree, A, that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve risk to the life of the pregnant woman or of injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman, or any existing children of her family greater than if the pregnancy were terminated. Or, B, that there is a substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped. The Act also provides that in making this determination, account may be taken of the pregnant woman's actual or reasonably foreseeable environment. It also permits a physician without the concurrence of others to terminate a pregnancy where he is of the good faith opinion that the abortion is immediately necessary to save the life or to prevent grave permanent injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman, end quote. I really love that mm. because it takes into consideration the mental health of the pregnant woman, the risk of life. We're talking about risk rather than the absolute of, we know this is going to kill the woman.
0: Yes. As you were talking about like all of these different circumstances and what might happen in the labor and what her mental state might in her emotional state might be afterwards. I mean, who, who does know who has the best idea of how that's going to impact her? She does. Mm -hmm. And who's the second best person who will know her doctor, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. And then maybe her mom. Like <laughs> like you said, like more women in the room. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely not some lawmaker somewhere who's never met her and doesn't know her medical history or her emotional state, the circumstances of her pregnancy. Thanks for reading that. I was thinking that I want to share another story. This is a story of a very, very dear friend of mine, and I won't say her name in order to protect the anonymity of her and her family. But Lindsay, you remember who this was. I do. So when I was a new mom with just baby Lindsay, I had a neighbor who had just had a baby at the same time. And so she had a little boy that was just exactly Lindsay's age. And we became friends. We took turns watching each other's babies so we could exercise, and then inevitably we would just end up staying at each other's houses and chatting, and we'd eat lunch together, and we kept, kept our own food at each other's houses because we were together so often. We served in church together, spending hours and hours outside of church in planning meetings and doing service for that congregation where we lived at the time that had a lot of needs, and so we did some really meaningful work together. And then we got pregnant with our second babies at the exact same time. And so we went through those pregnancies together and ended up having our babies within just a week of each other. So then we had our first two kids that were the same ages. We shared a lot of really deep conversations. She had a master's degree in social work, and we both loved learning. We both loved reading about psychology, and she was just a really curious person and a deep thinker, and she was super fun. She was one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. So eventually, she and her husband ended up moving to a different state so that he could go to law school and i was devastated that she moved but we talked on the phone sometimes we weren't super great about keeping in touch that was before texting and neither of us were really phone talkers so we we lost touch a little bit but she reached out one day and said hey i just want you to know i just got diagnosed with melanoma i'm and she she told me she was near one of the best cancer hospitals in the country but that it was complicated because she was pregnant with her third baby. And so they couldn't treat the cancer aggressively like they would have wanted to. So she and her husband had to make the choice of what to do. She chose to keep the pregnancy and to do a very, very complicated and difficult balancing act of doing what they could do. to treat the cancer without hurting the baby and she carried the baby as long as she could and then when the doctors decided the baby was healthy enough and would be okay outside the womb they took the baby and delivered the baby by c-section and the plan had been to battle the cancer aggressively as soon as the baby was out but by then it was too late And she died six days after the baby was born, leaving her husband with their two little boys and their newborn in the NICU. Obviously, this is really hard for me to talk about. It's been about 14 years since she died, and I still can't say her name without crying. But the reason I wanted to share this story is not really because about What she specifically chose to do. But I just want to tell her story because my friend was a smart person, a really smart person. She was a courageous person. She was a moral person and a wise person. And she happened to be a spiritual person too. And when I think of her being in that agonizing, excruciating situation, I have two really strong urges looking back. The first is that I just want to hug her and tell her she's good and brave and that I love her. And the second very strong urge I have is that I want to clear the room to protect her from anybody who thinks they know what is best for her and just tell them to go home and keep their opinions to themselves. I know that in that moment of anguish, my friend brought in her husband and her family and a team of excellent doctors. And she was a person of faith, so I know she prayed every second of that time while she was making her decision. And I just don't think it's anybody's right to judge her, to judge her decision, or tell her what was right for her life and her family. That was nobody's right but hers. And as I've read more and more stories of girls and women, I just have that same urge. I want to hug them and say, You are brave. You are smart, you are wise, and then ask them, who do you trust to support you while you make this difficult choice? And then clear the room of everyone else so that that girl or that woman can think clearly and have every option available that she and her doctor think is best.
1: Amy, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think that you are brave for even just telling that really personal story. And I think you're exactly right that these are difficult decisions. And even after the woman makes them, in your friend's case, I'm so sorry that she passed away. Had she not passed away, she may have revisited it for the rest of her life. And so I think you're exactly right that everyone needs to just keep their opinions to themselves because most times women will revisit it from every angle themselves. Mm-hmm. So that was a really complicated situation. I think whenever you're weighing maternal health against fetal health, it can feel impossible. And my heart just, I just feel like my heart's aching for the people that have to make those really hard choices.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Lynn. Me too. I, uh, my heart aches too. And I also just want to say, too, that making abortion safe and legal for all women so that it's an option for any and all of the different complex circumstances they find themselves in, which a lot of them, I can't even imagine what those might be. That doesn't mean that a woman ever has to have an abortion, right? If a woman feels for any reason religious or otherwise, that she doesn't want to end her pregnancy, she never has to, right? That will never be imposed on her. But it also makes sure that her private beliefs won't be imposed on someone else. Exactly. Right? Yep. Okay. Well, let's start back into Roe versus Wade by talking about the tradition of American law in the 19th century. Quote, throughout the major portion of the 19th century, abortion was viewed with less disfavor than under most American statutes currently in effect. Phrasing it another way, a woman enjoyed a substantially broader right to terminate a pregnancy than she does in most states today. At least with respect to the early stage of pregnancy, and very possibly without such a limitation, the opportunity to make this choice was present in this country well into the 19th century. Okay, then the document goes on to describe how that attitude of where it was relatively open and available or or that there wasn't criminalization in common law changed in 1857 when the American Medical Association Committee on Criminal Abortion was formed and they began a campaign against abortion rights. So Roe versus Wade cites this campaign as a huge turning point in American attitudes. I have to point out that the American Medical Association was comprised of all men at that time, and they were marshalling the forces of doctors, who of course were all men at the time, and the clergy, again, 100% men, to make this decision on a matter that takes place 100% inside of women. Okay, so our next point comes from nearly 100 years later in 1967. This is, again, the American Medical Association Committee on Criminal Abortion. And in 1967, apparently they were still kind of campaigning against abortion rights and Some of these rules in the next part that I'm going to read sound better. So, Lindsay, I'm curious to hear what you think. It says there should be no abortion, quote, except when there is documented medical evidence of a threat to the health or life of the mother, or that the child may be born with incapacitating physical deformity or mental deficiency, or that a pregnancy resulting from legally established statutory or forcible rape or incest may constitute a threat to the mental or physical health of the patient. Two other physicians chosen because of their recognized professional competence have examined the patient and concurred in writing, and the procedure is performed in a hospital accredited by the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals."
1: yeah, what do you think of those? Yes, things? yes, this is good. This is a this is good progress because now we're talking about the health and the life of the mother. We're not just talking about, well, we'll allow decisions and termination if the mom's going to die. But we're also talking about if her health is going to be completely destroyed. And we're also looking to cases of physical deformities, mental deficiencies. You can take that either way, actually. But I think it's good that we're looking at this as more of a nuanced and complicated question. I do take issue with the part that says An abortion would be allowed if a pregnancy was from legally established rape or incest. Legally establishing rape or incest is, in my opinion, nearly impossible. (laughs) It's estimated that less than 25% of rape is reported, less than 10% for incest. And that's just what's reported. Mm. Rape kits in many areas are backlogged. Victims often don't get medical help. And so then that's... Also, they're not getting evidence right away. Mm. And most don't ever even seek legal help. So giving them the option of an abortion, but then making it hinge on having the legal system involved, that's ridiculous. It makes it seem like we're giving them options, but that's not even really an option. Most women never really get a, a legal ruling that they were raped or that they were the victim of incest. So, yeah, I think we need to. Just listen to the women again. If they if they want an abortion, first of all, I don't think they I don't think it's any of our business if they got raped or have been the victim of incest. But if you are going to ask them, certainly don't make them get a legal document or or a court case going.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm just thinking of some poor
0: girl or woman being raped and then having to go into the you know, there's the station, the police station. It's so traumatizing to do those kinds of examinations and to get evidence. And then like you said, even if they do that, then the rape kit sits on the shelf. Sometimes for years, let alone like you would need to act so fast to get that rape kit, kit processed. then to have the pregnancy comes in. Tra- yes. In the meantime, yeah. that's not realistic that that would ever help. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it takes months or years to establish. Yes. Rape. Even if it goes to trial, which a lot of times then the rapist is acquitted.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's just
0: not. It's, anyway.
1: It's it's like they're they're trying to give them that that option and saying, we'll work with you. You know, you can do it if you can pursue an abortion if this has happened to you. But in reality, that's not really what's ever going to be helpful. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, Well, putting that condition aside, there were many good developments happening in the 1960s and 70s. So paternalism is declining. And the American Public Health Association then was adopting rather helpful standards. Their national recommendations included having safe, clean environments. They said, if you're going to have an abortion, we need you to have a highly trained professional performing it. And if the person would like to have counseling. They can have counseling, but we do want to talk about contraception and sterilization with every patient. So this these kinds of recommendations are happening right during the era of Roe v. Wade. So the American Public Health Association was making these strides in recognizing that abortions do occur and that women seeking them need help. But that was happening kind of in a national body, state by state. Things still varied very greatly, like in Texas, where Roe was challenging Wade. Abortion was still criminalized.
0: Ah, that's, yeah, that's really helpful. Okay, so in the next part, the document lists three reasons why laws criminalizing abortion were advanced in the 19th century. We'll cover them quickly, but I do want to cover them because they bring up some important issues. So the first one offered is that, quote, it has been argued occasionally that these laws were the product of a Victorian social concern to discourage illicit sexual conduct, end quote. I have heard that argument a lot, right, that if abortion is legal, then people will have sex all the time because there won't be any consequences and it will just encourage premarital sex. So I hear that in religious contexts a
1: lot. (laughs) I really think that's silly because (laughs) people aren't going into sexual encounters thinking, oh, no biggie. If we conceive, we'll just have an abortion. I I don't think, you know, you're thinking that far in Mm -hmm. advance. Plus, I really don't like the idea of having the consequence of illicit sex is that you have to now have a baby. We're going to punish you with a child. I, I just think the whole thing's a little bit convoluted.
0: Yes, that is such a good point. That's horrible, because then who suffers? The child. The child and the parents. And the mother. And everybody suffers, right? Yes. Oh, that's such, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, a second reason that people proposed that abortion law became so much more strict in the 19th century is concerned with abortion as a medical procedure, Quote, when most criminal abortion laws were first enacted, the procedure was a hazardous one for the woman. Modern medical techniques have altered this situation, although not without its risk, abortion is now relatively safe. Consequently, any interest of the state in protecting the woman from an inherently hazardous procedure has largely disappeared. Okay, so what we have now is a situation where because hospitals do have antibiotics and trained professionals and sterile equipment, abortion is extremely safe in a medical environment. But it's still extremely unsafe in an unregulated environment. So if the state really wants to protect women's lives, then it does need to keep abortion legal. Because making abortion illegal does not prevent women from getting abortions. It just endangers the lives of the women. And in fact, in parts of the world where abortion is illegal, botched abortions still cause about 8 to 11 percent of all maternal deaths. That's about 30,000
1: women every year. That percentage, 8 to 11 percent of all maternal deaths, is because of botched abortions, that is very surprising to me. I had no idea that roughly 10 out of 100 are from botched abortions. And that's really sad when you consider the fact that we have antibiotics now, Mm. we have trained professionals, we have hospitals. So We do see that the Supreme Court is speaking to this. I'm going to quote Justice Blackmun. He said, The state has a legitimate interest in seeing to it that abortion, like any other medical procedure, is performed under circumstances that ensure maximum safety for the patient. This interest obviously extends at least to the performing physician and his staff, to the facilities involved, to the availability of aftercare, and to adequate provision for any complication or emergency that might arise. The prevalence of high mortality rates at illegal abortion mills strengthens rather than weakens the state's interest in regulating the conditions under which abortions are performed.
0: Wow. Yeah. So I think that quote is like one of the most important parts of Roe versus Wade. So. Next, the document Roe v. Wade keeps talking about women's safety, and specifically now it's it starts to talk about the fact that abortion is safest when it's performed early.
1: Yeah, the risk to a woman definitely increases as pregnancy continues. So let's talk about late-stage abortions. They are so rare and can usually be avoided if early abortions are legal and easy to procure and don't have a ton of hoops to jump through. The more barriers and requirements for permission and waiting periods, the later the abortion takes place. However, there are cases where late-stage abortion is needed. There are so many situations women can find themselves in that we can't anticipate. We need to support and trust the women. They're the ones dealing with these situations. They know what is going on so much better than any of us watching from the outside. Mm -hmm. So the next part
0: talks about the Constitution, because, again, the, this is a group of judges that is trying to determine constitutionality of prohibiting abortion, right? And so right. they have to defend and uphold the Constitution. And so what it says is, quote, the Constitution does not explicitly many mention any right of privacy. In a line of decisions, however, going back perhaps as far as Union Pacific Railroad Company versus Botsford in 1891, the court has recognized that a, a right of personal privacy or a guarantee of certain areas or zones of privacy does exist under the Constitution. And then in parentheses, it says this understanding of right to privacy also influenced the legalization of interracial marriage in Loving versus Virginia and the use of contraception in Eisenstadt versus Baird.
1: Yay. I'm starting to love the right to privacy. It's not something that I had really thought of, but the right to privacy helped decide those things that are so wonderful and important.
0: Totally. Okay. So Justice Blackman says that some arguments for abortion, however, do go too far for the court at this time. And he says that some dissenting opinions, quote, argue that the woman's right is absolute and that she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, and for whatever reason she alone chooses. With this, we do not agree. We therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision, but that this right is not unqualified and must be considered against important state interests in regulation, end quote. So, I mean, given that we were just saying like, that's my, that's literally my private parts, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. and that is my right to privacy. He's saying, but that's not unqualified. That's not just unlimited. I personally do agree with that. Yeah, you can do whatever you want with your body as long as it doesn't hurt someone else's body. I do
1: think that it's it just comes back to the question of when does pregnancy tissue become a life. Right. So we just don't know. Right. And I'm actually going to dive into a quote here it says we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine philosophy and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. It should be sufficient to note briefly the wide divergence of thinking on this most sensitive and difficult question. There has always been strong support for the view that life does not begin until live birth. This was the belief of the Stoics. It appears to be the predominant, though not the unanimous, attitude of the Jewish faith. Yes,
0: this was so interesting to me. I found an article in USA Today that describes the frustration that some Jewish people feel when Christians refer to the Bible, which is, of course, the sacred book that they share, as prohibiting abortion, because it doesn't. (laughs) There's a quote from Donya Rutenberg, who's a Chicago based rabbi, and she says, It makes me apoplectic. Most of the proof texts that they're bringing in for this are ridiculous. They're using my sacred text to justify taking away my rights, end quote.
1: That's so powerful. No one wants to be ruled by someone else's moral compass. Yeah. But Mm. inherent in this whole discussion is looking for a cutoff date, right? Mm. The place where we draw a line in the sand and say, okay, at this point, the mother's life is more important, or at this point, the baby's potential life is too compelling to allow abortion. We're always, we're just looking for that point, right? right. However, if you're drawing a line that ends at the f- end of the first trimester, yeah. sometimes women don't know that there's a fetal genetic problem until the second. yeah. And so every single case that I've ever had where a mom has come in and the baby has passed away in utero the one of the first questions they ask me is, what did I do? Mm. What what, did I do something that caused this? I remember one couple in the where the the husband looked at me and said, we went to a movie last night that was really, really loud. Do you think that could have cost us this baby? And a lot of what I do is reassuring and saying, no, nothing, you've done nothing wrong. So then to think that we could make this a criminal thing wow. it's just wrong
0: yeah oh that's heartbreaking
1: i'm just glad in roe way the justice has determined that the state didn't have the right to to say that before live birth this is a human life and that you can prosecute you know things that happen you mm-hmm. know anyway it just i think it's important to Value the unborn child's life. Obviously, I value that. And I love I love pregnancy and babies and the magic of life. But we need to also consider so many other things. Mm.
0: That's powerful, Lindsay. I mean, yes, you above all. And that's why it's so valuable to have you as a reader of this text and making comments. You literally have dedicated your life to the healthy birth of babies and mothers. Mm. And so... Your perspective is just so valuable, and thanks for sharing those stories. So that wraps up our discussion today, and we usually end by sharing a takeaway or two. So both men and women on every part of the political spectrum, I would think, would agree that abortion is not a happy thing for anyone. So what can we do to decrease the number of abortions? As I mentioned, I did extensive research on the data, and some of the facts are these. Abortion is sought and needed even in settings where it is restricted, that is, in countries where it is prohibited altogether or is allowed only to save a woman's life. Unintended pregnancy rates are highest in countries that restrict abortion access and lowest in countries where abortion is broadly legal. So the abortion rate is actually higher in countries that restrict abortion access than in those that do not. In countries that restrict abortion, the percentage of unintended pregnancies ending in abortion has increased during the past 30 years, from 36% from 1990 to 1994 to 50% between 2015 and 2019. So my takeaway is reducing unwanted pregnancy Seems to me to be a goal that everyone can get behind. We know how to do it. So I think we should just look at the data and do what is working. And that means education, contraception, and access to safe, legal abortion. So that's my takeaway. What would you say a main takeaway is for you, Lindsay, or something that you want to leave your listeners with?
1: I've mentioned it before. I've helped countless women deliver babies that have passed away in utero. And I can't even explain the grief that I've seen them experience. I've seen them explain what's happened to their families and the tears and the sorrow. But I've also seen some of the most inspiring courage that that I can even imagine. It, it's incredible, these women. And whether the pregnancies end accidentally during the pregnancy or whether a mom has to choose to end the life of her baby, the loss would be awful, the pain immense. And I think we have to just have compassion and trust these wonderful, brave women. So that's my main takeaway. I think there's as many circumstances as there are women in this entire world, and there's no way that that we can know what is best for each one there's just too many circumstances and we just need to give the power back to women and then stand back and watch what they choose because it's usually wise and courageous and beautiful Again, I
0: want to thank Lindsay McPhee Hickok for her wisdom and for the beautiful and tender way that she approached this topic. When we recorded this episode, we could not have imagined that Roe v. Wade would actually be overturned. But since we live in a new world now, I want to close with some ways that you can take action to restore this fundamental right. First, talk to friends and family. Share information with the people in your life, including well-sourced articles, personal stories, and this episode of the podcast. We recommend you approach discussions openly and authentically. Helping to educate and sway minds in our communities can lead to larger changes in social trends, such as funding and voting behaviors. Second, volunteer on a local level. This week's episode by Teresa Beauchamp and Del Rule was particularly inspiring to me because these two people had such different temperaments and different gifts to bring to the table, and they both did what was authentic to them to create change. So think about what you can offer and then do that. You could volunteer to escort people who need abortions to their local clinic. You could become a talk line advocate for people who are weighing their reproductive options. Or you could find an abortion clinic office where you could volunteer by looking up trustwomen.org. Whatever your skills are, chances are they can be helpful during this crisis. Number three, protest. Look up reproductive rights protest near me and you will find lots of options. Number four, donate to abortion access funds. There has been an outpouring of donations since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but if you find yourself unable to engage directly, donations can still make a difference. People who need abortions will need transportation. They need time off work. They need cash flow to travel to a different state if they live in a state where abortion is now illegal. And our money can ensure that these people get to their destination safely and without the additional hardship of emptying their wallets in the process of procuring safe reproductive health care, So we advise identifying an abortion fund in your area or a nearby area that's experiencing restricted access. The National Network of Abortion Funds can be a helpful resource in identifying these funds. I also encourage support for Planned Parenthood, which does more than any other organization probably in preventing unwanted pregnancies in the first place and providing reproductive health care, and also Keep Our Clinics, which is a campaign that raises money for independent abortion clinics, which provide the majority of abortions in this country at present. And all of these resources are available on our website in the show notes. Beyond these suggestions, we encourage you to continue to vote for and advocate for candidates and legislation defending abortion access. Elect leaders who trust women. Thanks for joining us today, and as always, I want to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production and Brianna Jovan for our editing. Please, again, share this episode widely and broadly and join us next week for another amazing episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy.